you have the Word of God, I'd love for you to take it and turn to Mark chapter number 11 this morning. Mark chapter number 11. Just to remind you, um, it's the first uh, Sunday. And for some of you are visiting with us. We welcome you to this meeting of Christ Bible Church. And just pray it's a blessing to you to get together on the Lord's Day Fellowship and sit under the, um, the reading, the teaching, the prayers, just um, the singing. And pray that it's an encouragement to you. And that God ministers to your heart in some mighty way to give you energy for this week because the Lord knows you'll need it, and we do too. Um, so we welcome you. Um, we welcome your little ones in the congregation. Um, some of you are busy with us, have children. Uh, if you need the nursery, we don't have a staff nursery, but if you need the nursery, it's just right back here to, the, to my right, so it'll be to your left across from the restrooms. And um, We designed the service that way. And that doesn't mean that we... Um, necessarily allowed to become chaotic if you ever need to take them out for any reason feel free to do that uh, even if it's just to take a break you know sometimes I preach too long <laughs> and um, and it's and uh, yeah all the time I preach too long and, uh, and your children may not be used to that so um, if you need to take them out for uh, correction discipline um, instruction or just to take a break halfway through you know we understand that um, and encourage that we want to keep the uh, we want to reverence the word of God not be too distracting and take away from that so if you need any of that um, please feel free to, to to utilize it there's also activity bags over here to the right for kids with coloring books and and different things and pages that they can write on and uh, the older kids there's little uh, sermon notes that they can take that's the goal that's the goal you know it's not just to have children in service it's to teach children how to worship and to worship with families to teach them how to see it and receive God's word and to um, and to, to, to see the worship of God from their fathers and from their mothers and from their brothers and from their sisters. And and uh, we, we believe that in the long run, playing the long-term game, that this will be a blessing from generation to generation. So we designed the service um, like that. And I uh, just want to encourage you in that and, uh, and say we're praying for you and you pray for our family as we strive to do that. It's tough on some Lord's days. Uh, it's tough on most, but it's good. It's good, and it's necessary. Just as uh, raising a child every single day of the week. I'm also, um, to, it's the first uh, Lord's Day of the, the month, and we generally take communion. We'll give more instruction on that um, at the end, but I encourage you to prepare your hearts. And then after that, we will have a fellowship dinner as well. If you didn't prepare for that, you didn't make anything, you feel bad, and you think I should leave because of that, don't. Uh, feel free to stay, and it's always a blessing to stay around another hour or two and just fellowship around um, God's Word, around each other. So I want to encourage you. Um, to do that. Sometimes it's, uh, it's where we take the sermon or something that we've learned throughout the week or various other things and just uh, edify, build up, and encourage one another. And it's always just an essential time um, to fellowship. Um, God's people is more than this. The church is more than this. It's, it's not less than this, but it's more than this. It's life together. It's um, it's holding one another up. It's a brother falling and you're picking him up and restoring him, you know. Um, it's um, it's it's encouraging words. It's instruction. It's it's rebuke. It's it's family. You know, it's brothers and sisters. It's fathers and mothers, and not biologically. It's um, spiritually. Um, who come together um, because they need one another, and um, they need Christ. And oftentimes they find Christ in one another. And um, this is just so essential. This is um, oftentimes where hope is found because this is oftentimes where Christ is found. Where two or three are gathered together, he says, there I am in the midst. He's in the preaching. He's in the singing. He's, he's in the means of, of, of grace. He's in 
Um, he's in the, the, the Lord's table in some way and he shares with us his truth and he extends to us faith and grace um, because tomorrow it's going to be hard, you know. Tuesday is going to be hard. Wednesday is going to be difficult. You know, the world's falling apart, it seems, at the seams. And, um, and, and it doesn't make sense. And, and, um, and I come here and I think, man, uh, um, this helps me to make sense of it all. And uh, you help me make sense of it all. And God, uh, through His Word, does. So I want to encourage you to be more engaged in the body. He's already am. Then do more. <laughs> we can always be more engaged. So um, let's get into the Word. Um, if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. That is, if you're willing and able. And we'll take our reading up this morning in Mark chapter number 11. And Sorry, I turned to Matthew. Mark chapter number 11, and we'll begin our reading in verse 27 to verse 33. Uh, verse 27, we read these words, and then they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I, will all, I, will, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you, by what authority I do these things? The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, when did, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you. By what authority I do these things? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we um, we praise you simply because you are worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've extended to us in giving this opportunity, Father, to gather. But more than that, um, giving us that opportunity in Christ to have new life, Father, and to have it more abundantly. Father, we never deserved it. Um, Lord, we were rebels by nature. Children of wrath, Paul tells us. Walking our own way. Living our own life. Building our own kingdom. Doing our own things. Erecting our idols. Father, in your Son, by the power of the Spirit and the Gospel, and I just overwhelmed our hearts and souls one day. I pray anyway, Father, that's all of us. And um, Father, you came, your son came to seek and to save that which was lost, Father. Paul says, of whom I am chief. I find it hard to believe that he was, knowing myself. But I'll take him at his word. Father, we praise you just for saving souls. Father, we praise you for the great plan of redemption, Father. We praise you for a willing son, and we praise you, Father, for a powerful spirit. We praise you for the word of God, Father, that goes forth into the very hearts, Father. When we don't, when we're not looking for you, you find us. Father, we're thankful for that persevering grace that you give us. We're thankful for the disciplinary, chastising hand of God. And we're, 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 Father, we praise you for the for the comfort and the encouragement that you give us on days, Father. We thank you for the building up. Father of us, we thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son and all that you continue to give on our behalf, Father, and part of that is this. So, Father, as we go to your Word now, we just pray a blessing upon it. God, we pray that um, you would just exalt Christ, that your Spirit, Father, would just take Him into our hearts and places that He's never gone. 
Father, that um, he would rule and reign as, as king um, in so many more areas of our life, Father, than he already does. Father, um, we pray that you'll take the word even in my own heart, Father, as I preach and that you'll just do eternal things with it. Father, we pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, and a heart that is tender um, to receive God's word, Father, and that we would not only receive it, Father, not only know it, but love it. And um, Father, we're praying you do this because we know that we can't. Father, I pray in some sense for myself that in this moment that you would just ease my anxieties. Father, that you would... um, God, I cast my burdens upon you and my cares because I know that you love me. Peter tells me that. God, and all that you will ever do now in Christ is love me. Whether it's a chastising hand, Father, or it's um, loving um, extension of your grace and <laughs> communion with you. Um, Father, you, you love us so. So as we gather around your word, Father, may it not be a burden or a yoke. And that you place upon us that father may it just be we we keep your commandments because you love us and because we love you so father whatever is preached this morning whatever is taught whatever is read father may we recognize that it doesn't come from a tyrannical dictator or a capricious father father but um but a loving loving god so lord um, help us to receive your word now Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ today as Savior, Father, we're trusting you to save them because we can't. So take the gospel, Lord, into their hardened hearts and just melt it into a heart of flesh and give them, Father, a newness of life. And uh, it would be just such a beautiful day, Father, to rejoice in a newborn babe into the family of God. And, uh, Father, we would rejoice in you if you did that. So do it, Lord, according to your will. Father, it's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. For those of you that haven't been with us, um, we've simply been taking the book of Mark verse by verse. We began over a year ago in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 1. So we talk about uh, preaching a text. We simply come to the next text. Um, Believe this to be um, one of the most faithful ways to approach the scriptures to take in the whole counsel of God. So when we come this morning, we come to Mark chapter number 11, as we just finished up last week, that previous portion. So we begin here in verse number 27. But before we begin, I want to just say that God's rule and reign um, has always been communicated to God's people and through humanity in general, um, through a sense, at least in one sense, in the sense of a kingdom. I mean, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden um, you, you study in relationship to the nation of Israel and you find that there's temple type language there. Um, but even if you don't believe that it's temple type language um, in, the, in the beginning, what you begin to find is that there's definitely kingdom language. And there's kingdom, kingdom language in the mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve. He tells them to take dominion over all the earth. Um, authority was given to them to rule over the animals, over the kingdom of the world, uh, essentially to extend um, God's rule and reign outside of Eden um, into the fullness of the earth by spreading um, the very image of God that was upon them, by reproducing, by multiplying, by raising up godly heritage um, and extending it to the end of the world. Later we meet uh, the nation of Israel, of which becomes in some sense God's kingdom. Um, uh, we meet um, an Israel, a nation in which a king was prophesied. Uh, but in their impatience, they call a king that God didn't ordain. 
Um, why? Because they wanted to be like the other nations. It wasn't really a good idea and led to much uh, problems in the nation. Not only that do we see God's rule over the Old Testament nation of Israel, uh, but we get a solid picture of what God desires a nation to be. And within that framework of God's Old Testament people, prophecies are given speaking of a coming king. Uh, one who would rule over them with ultimate authority. Where the Old Covenant failed, the New Covenant would come in, and God's faithfulness essentially at that moment would be the bond and hope of this covenant. Um, it would be, as uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel commend to us in their, um, in their, uh, their writings, um, it would be a new covenant, not like the old covenant. It would be a covenant in which um, God would secure it by Himself, for Himself, for His own sake. And one of the ways that He would do that is that He would um, secure a heart for those um, for whom He died. And by the power of the gospel and faith and repentance, a new heart would be given. And uh, Jeremiah 31 tells us that the law of God would be written upon their hearts and that they would uh, obey Him. And that we see that within this new covenant, everyone is saved. Um, everyone in the new covenant who have experienced the new birth by the power of the Spirit, um, the text there in Jeremiah 31, 31 and on says that they will be forgiven of their sins, a law written upon their heart, and they'll have no more need of saying to one another, know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord. And within this covenant, um, the church is what we're going to, which is, which is applied to the church out of Hebrews, um, the writer of Hebrews, that in this new covenant um, is a, is a, is a flawless covenant in some sense. You look around and you look at the church and you say, but it doesn't look like it's flawless. And we're not. But it is in the sense that it secures the salvation of those who come to faith in Christ, who believe the Gospel. That everyone that is saved is, is within this new covenant. Thus, there's no one within the new covenant, we would argue, um, that is not saved. And thus, all that are in the new covenant receive the benefits of Christ. And that within this covenant, just like the old covenant, He would rule and reign, but in a different way. He wouldn't rule by a law that's written upon tablets of stone, but He would rule and reign um, through and by and in the hearts of men. Um, entering into this kingdom, this kingdom of God, demands submission to the king's authority. He, uh, the man or the woman that enters into this kingdom must yield their, their mind, their affections, and their will to the king's authority. And they must do it by faith and by repentance. To enter into the kingdom, one must enter in under total submission to the scepter of divine authority. And that doesn't exactly mean that it looks like a perfect life. But it does mean that the Christian life is characterized by Christ being that, 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 that citizen's king. Um, thus, He has ultimate authority over their lives such that when He speaks, they listen and they obey. A complete autonomy and self-rule which once governed their lives as unbelievers are no longer principles that should govern their lives. And that's one of the glories of the great, and the greatness of that new covenant. That's one of the glories of the church. That He's building this phenomenal kingdom through this very fact and He rules in the hearts of men. It's glorious because God dwells with us now not in temples made with hands, but in our hearts. By virtue of that dwelling, He changes us from one glory to the next. He changes our lives by changing our hearts. He changes our hands by changing our hearts. He changes our feet by changing our hearts. And this, 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 this sanctification, this work of God just oozes out um, day by day as we're continually sanctified and the Word of God is applied and the Spirit of God just presses upon the hearts of men that they need to love God more and keep His commandments. 
But at the same time, there's a danger here. There's a danger because it's not pure in every sense. There's a danger that it always always has been, that there'll be a group of men and women who will keep up some pretense of religion, yet continually reject the authority of the king in their hearts. And they do it for a number of reasons. They do it even sincerely sometimes, out of authenticity. They live an external life of devotion to some form of religion, all while their hearts lie dead and cold, riddled with all sorts of plagues like anger, depression, anxiety, hatred, darkness, legalism, trying to earn something with God, climb up to heaven. And the Bible says that these men and women are whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Beautiful on the outside and dead on the end. That's the the, the danger for us, not for God. God secures those by whom He saves. He extends new covenant blessings in Christ to all men will come to Him by faith and repentance. The problem is, is that we're not God and we can't see that. Thus, we have within the New Testament and with the Old Testament and within our generation and maybe within this church, we have walking corpses. They give a name that they're alive, but they're dead. Um, And one of the hallmark signs of a man or a woman like this is a rejection of authority. Of authority. It's interesting because no one would necessarily come out right and say that, and these men wouldn't either. You know? Um, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the elders, they wouldn't come out and say that we reject authority. Uh, but ultimately, what you're going to find is that they are their own, own ultimate authority. And the great tragedy of passages like this, you know? And it's interesting how different passages affect you at different times. I read last week, the past couple of weeks, Christ going into the temple and, and just overturning the tables. And, and it's like watching a video or, or seeing a play or sitting in a congregation with a preacher. And sometimes you're affected and you're, and you're like, go get them, you know, Lord. Like righteous indignation. Amen. They deserve it. And then other times you just read it and there's just sorrow that fills your soul. You know, there's sadness this week as I read the text. What a tragedy. I think Bunyan put it like this in his in that great work, Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm going to butcher the quote because I don't have it right before me. Um, but, it, but essentially like this, you know, that there's a way to heaven or there's a way to hell even at the gates of heaven. You know, that men will enter into hell as they stand even at the gates of heaven. And what he was getting at is, is that there's a way to live life so close to the gates of heaven that you deceive yourself to, to thinking that you'll enter in. Um, but when the time is right and you stand before the great judge, um, eternal condemnation is, you've met your demise. I think about Judas when I think about that. I think about a man who kissed the face of God and fell headlong into eternity without him. And you think about men who are so close, who handled, as John says, handled the very Word of God. Talking about the flesh. Jesus Christ and His flesh. And Jesus Christ in His blood. And Jesus Christ there before Him. You think of men like Judas who were there for three and a half years who, who prayed with the, with, with, with the Creator of heaven and earth. 
You know, the God of all creation, the one who, who formed him, the, the very cells of his body, his hands, his, his mental capacity, his heart was beating because, because of the man, the, the, the man Christ Jesus that stood before him. Colossians tells us, um, John chapter 1 tells us that there was nothing that was ever made um, outside of anything that he made. You know, like in this, 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 this man sits before him, prays with him, uh, recognizes and sees and acknowledges his deity at different times and in, in some capacity, in a mental capacity, you know, sees the, the, the staying of the storm, sees the, 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 the healing of the blind and the, and, the, and, the, and the lady with the issue of blood healed and, and the deaf um, opened and the, and the eyes that are seen. And, and as you see the, the, the miraculous ministry, he knows the Old Testament Scriptures, no doubt, in some capacity. And, like he, and he kisses the very gates of heaven and God Himself. Like, and He can't see. He can't see. He can't see. And there's a world out there that can't see. And they think all the while that they can. They can. And they deceive themselves. You know? And that's what you see with these men. You even see men that seem to be sincere. You see men here that are going to seem to be inquisitive and ask questions and carry on a facade. But it's all, that's all it is. It's a facade, you know? And in one sense, there's a righteous indignation, and in another sense, you think, man, what a, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. Matthew 7, what a tragedy. Men will come before, stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and say, Lord, look what I did. And they will be utterly surprised at the great verdict that He gives. You know? so sad and again it's interesting because they wouldn't come out and say I reject God's authority but at the same time they reject the authority that God has ordained men and women like this they reject husbands and they reject fathers. They reject mothers and they reject employers. They reject civil magistrates. They reject pastors and they reject elders and ultimately they reject the Word of God. And it's interesting that the great tragedy and the great danger of this is that legalists um, are the worst at this, all the while um, maintaining some sense of external piety and devotion to God. Yet they utilize the Word of God as a means um, to pursue their own desires. And they twist the Word of God in such a way um, to build their own kingdom and to do what they want as they want. And they bind the, the, the necks of men and put upon them um, uh, chains and enslave them to certain things um, that God never required or God never ordained. And they exercise they, 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 their own authority over other men because they see themselves and desire to be the ultimate authority. And that's what we're going to find in these conflicts that are before us um, in the text. If you've been with us in previous weeks, you may remember um, that there were some public acts of Jesus that really began to um, run against the very grain in the hearts of these men. Um, Jesus now is what we may refer to as a marked man. Um, as Mark points out in uh, chapter 11 and verse number um, 18, 
that the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Um, uh, just to remind you that at this point in Mark, Mark is now, uh, we're in the last week of Jesus' life and we're just probably two to three days away from the time which he will be, resu- he will be um, raised up there upon that cross and he'll give his life on Calvary for the nations. <laughs> you know. But, but, but for the next several chapters and it's going to take us months and maybe a year, who, uh, only God knows um, if he gives us that long. Um, we will see the Passion Week of our Lord as he is, he is pressing against these men and he's pressing against the religious elite um, such to the point that they will murder him and secure the salvation of all those um, who would believe. And in this text, he's pressing. Um, he's pressing against that, um, those, their doctrines, their teaching, um, their, their apostasy um, to such that now they desire to kill him. Um, you may remember, and if you don't, uh, again, if you've not been with us just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is in the temple. Um, now he's going to enter, enter the temple for a third time. But the, the, the first time he was scoping things out, the second time he went in and he flipped a table um, at the money changers. Why? Because Old Testament prophecy uh, needed to be fulfilled. Christ is now here to fulfill His work, but also um, because they had turned the temple of God, that place where uh, men were to commune with God and they were to go to as a place of prayer, and they turned this place of prayer um, into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Um, through their greed, um, they, they, they flipped the very purpose of the temple and that which place which God was supposed to dwell and, um, and be used as a communion place with God uh, for the forgiveness of sins, for the sacrifice of God's people um, uh, on, on behalf of sinners um, had turned into a, nothing more than a casino, um, a gambling uh, place, a, a den of sin and thieves. So in righteous indignation, he comes in and he overthrows um, the tables. And there's no doubt that because of that, we see this text and and, um, and, and, and the fullness of it. Uh, verse number 27, we begin to see the quarrel that happens between Christ and these men. He says, uh, verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do um, these things? So Jesus is back into Jerusalem again, probably the third time that He enters the temple. And interestingly, this will be the last time that I can tell that He ever enters the temple. Um, This will be it. And you can imagine some tension now that's going on that was created, especially as He walks back through the door. Um, And remember the temple, that we're not just talking about a a great construction, but we're talking about a, a compound in which the temple's in the center um, the, the, the temple life outside of the actual construction of the temple, the holy place and, and all the uh, other uh, surrounding areas, there's, a, there's an area outside um, in which the, the, the outermost part of the Gentiles would gather together and they would exchange money and do other things and offer their sacrifices. And this is where Jesus is now walking into. And you can imagine the tension that rises as he walks in. Why? Because the day before, I mean, he's flipping tables. And you just can imagine, using a sanctified imagination, what's going on as they see Christ come back through. You can imagine the money changers now tucking the money away in and about to pack up and go home because they don't know exactly what this guy might do next. Um, but, but we don't see anything like that. You say, well, what was he doing? Well, Luke tells us what he was doing in Luke chapter 19 and verse 47. He says that he was there teaching daily in the temple. 
Um, there was a, a common area outside where rabbis would teach and they would preach. No doubt Jesus is there preaching the kingdom. No doubt He's there preaching compassion of God for sinners. No doubt He's there preaching sin and judgment and righteousness and humility and faith and repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the glories of the kingdom such that Luke chapter 19 says that He captivated the people. I mean, He's, you know... Uh, Probably he preaches and teaches in such a way that Mark tells us in Mark chapter number one that, that the scribes and the Pharisees or the people around look at him and say, this man preaches, or the people say, this man preaches as one having authority, not like the scribes. There's something different about him. He carries with him a weight that even our religious um, uh, leadership doesn't carry. This man is, is different such that he captivated the people to where they gathered around him, um, no doubt. Um, to make it even more interesting, uh, possibly in the middle of one of his teachings or, or, or during his teachings or after a teaching, he's approached is what the text tells us. And he's approached by three groups of people, priests, scribes, and elders. Um, and this is, yeah, God gives us everything for a purpose. And what you're going to see here is you're going to see the highest authority in the nation of Israel stand against the very authority of God and question Him. You know, uh, most people believe that what we have here is a representative group of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have been the highest religious group in, in all the land. They would have been unrestricted in religious matters and they would have had some restrictions but a lot of power in political matters. And they would have been made up of three groups, priests, scribes, and elders. The priests were a powerful group. They were full-time ministers in the temple. These men could walk anywhere in the city and they would have held the position of respect against all of the nation of Israel. Any Jew that encountered would have possibly at least, uh, not, not maybe not been enamored, but, but would have honored and respected this man. Why? Uh, because this man represented intercession with God. He was the man that would receive the sacrifices. He's the man that would labor in the temple. He's the one um, that, that without, the, the nation would not have been saved. He was sort of a mediator for men as he brought the sacrifices to the altar. Without that man, especially the high priest, no man would be able to approach God. The scribes were experts in the law. Um, you may refer to them also as, a, in the Scriptures, you'll see them referred to as a lawyer. They were the guardians of the law. They were the teachers of the law. They were authority. They were the authority on what the Bible had to say. Um, they were held in high esteem because without them, um, they, uh, the common man wouldn't know or have a sense of certainty about what God had said. But as importantly, what God meant. He was an interpreter of the law. Their authority and power lied in the knowledge of God's Word and their ability to communicate it clearly to the people. And then the elders. And these were men who governed the synagogue the place where the teaching of God's Word would happen um, day to day and week to week. They would have uh, had religious, civil, and political power. Their opinions would have been held in high esteem in government situations, in the paying of taxes, in synagogue polity, and in also as well in the teaching of Scripture. Men who would teach and, and men who, who wouldn't. And these are the men that stand against the Christ. Um, these are the men who represent possibly the highest form of religion and, re and come as representatives of God. And um, they question Christ on His authority. And there's a sense in which you see it's legitimate. Right? I mean, imagine if somebody come in here this morning and flipped the pulpit, uh, you know, and uh, for whatever reason. Um, I mean, what would we say? Whether it's legitimate or not, and they had a reason for it, we would say, who are you? 
And what right do you have to do such things? Um, in some sense, that's exactly what happened. Um, and, and, and this is their job to do, to come and, to, and to, 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 to discern exactly why he's there and exactly what he's doing. Um, but in another sense, it's not legitimate. Um, these men didn't come out of a, out of a legitimate concern um, to hear Christ's word, his answers, and his, and his, um, and his explanation of the things that he did. Um, these men have purposed in their hearts to entrap and discredit our Lord um, before the crowds. But Jesus was looked at um, as, a, as a religious zealot um, at, were, at best and a, a political um, yeah, zealot at worst. Uh, John chapter 12 tells us that um, they were worried that he, would, um, that he would bring the nations with him. That he would um, teach and preach in such a way that if he was left alone that the nations would follow him. Thus, they, had to, they determined to kill him. Uh, Luke chapter number uh, 19, I believe it is, or 20, uh, Luke chapter 20, um, says that in the parallel account that they came, which meant... And every other uh, time that it's used, they came to attack. They came after him. Um, they came to to ruin his authority, and they came to ruin his name in front of the people. They came also with a question, possibly I think, with the full intention of um, charging him with blasphemy because they knew what he would possibly say, um, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. Um, and what we have here is probably for the first time in the temple and before the Sanhedrin, the most authoritative place and the most authoritative body in Israel. Jesus opened a, opens up a window in understanding of His own authority. So get it. The Sanhedrin's before Him, the highest uh, religious body with the most authority. And He stands in the very grounds of the highest um, authority in all the world, the temple of God, where God dwells. And you have this man standing on, on holy ground before supposed holy people. And he wants to flip the table. So you can see why they're, they're upset. Who gave you this authority? Now, of course, they should have known who gave the authority. And that's the tragedy, isn't it? Again, authority, the, um, the, the word means the, the, the right to do something, but also the power to do it. Literally, it could be what sort of authority do you have that you could come in here and think that you could do something like this on temple ground before us? And you think nothing's going to happen. The tense of the verb actually gives indication that they were persistent. Whether it was asking multiple times to entrap him or just emphatically holding his feet to the fire, they wouldn't let it go. Um, just just re-emphasizing that question, wanting him to answer and to engage. Why? So that they can find him in some fumble, um, so that he doesn't understand the Scripture, discredit him before the people, so that they won't follow him, or um, get him to say that he is God, and then charge him with blasphemy, in which they would take him um, and charge him with a capital punishment of, of, of death. Death. That's what they're aiming at. Upon what authority do you do these things? And that's exactly what they got him for in Mark 14, 64. Um, the high priest challenges him in Mark chapter 14 and verse 61. Um, you read uh, these words. But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in verse 64, um, the high priest responds. Actually, verse 63, tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witness? We don't need to hear anything else. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And I'm convinced that in this portion of Scripture, uh, that that was their goal either to push him aside and ruin his testimony by entrapping him in some question, or he answers the question appropriately and they crucify the Christ based upon blasphemy. But they should have known what authority Christ had. Matthew 28 says that all authority was given to Christ in heaven and on earth. Paul says that Ephesians 1.21, that God the Father put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things the church. And of course we know that, but what about them? Was Christ's authority that clear to them? Because they didn't have those New Testament Scriptures. And the truth is, is that it should have been. Mark chapter 1 and verse 22 says they were astonished at His teaching for He had taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Verse uh, chapter 1 and 27 says that um, they were amazed at what He had done with the demons casting them out. They said, what new doctrine is this? For with authority, same word, He commands even the unclean spirits. Verse 28, and immediately His fame spread throughout all the region. Uh, chapter 2 and verse number 10, we see that He talks to um, some folks there and He teaches them that He has the authority to forgive sins. And somebody says, well, nobody has the authority to forgive sins but God, yet He does. Uh, Mark chapter 4 says that, um, shows us that He has the authority over disease. He has the authority over death. He has the authority over disaster. He can calm the seas. He can heal the blind. And He can heal the lame. He has authority in John chapter 10 and verse 17 to rise again from, the death, uh, from death. He says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Nobody. Nobody has the authority to take what I have, He says but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father is what He says. John 1.12, He has the authority to save. John 5.19, you read these words. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. Verse 21, And as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. You know, there is nowhere, nowhere in the Scriptures that He ever consults a Pharisee. He never talks to a scribe about what He should and shouldn't be able to do. He doesn't go to the Sanhedrin and see if it's okay for Him to flip the tables. The scribes never... Uh, he teaches like the scribes never taught as one having authority. Why? Because the scribes rested in their rabbis and other scribes and men throughout the ages. Jesus never quotes one, at least not explicitly like they do. And 70 times in the Gospels, or over 70 times, He says, Truly I say unto you, you have heard that it was said often, He says, but I say unto you, correcting the um, misinterpretations of the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And He did it all by His own. He did it all in His own authority. He did it according to His own free action, according, um, the text says, to the will of the Father. Uh, that He not only had the authority to say and to do, but the idea of this word authority carries with it the second connotation that He had the right to pull it off or the power to pull it off. You know, um, you may have local magistrates that have the authority and the right based upon federal law. 
Um, but what you'll find sometimes is they don't have the power to do it. There's a difference between having a right and having the power as well as the right. Um, this word here encompasses both. What God is, uh, what Christ has is, is the right to come in and to do certain things according to His status and position as the Creator God, the King of all the earth, the Savior of the nations. But not only that, take comfort that He has the power um, to secure um, His own will and His own desire. So you see the tension, you see the quarrel, and then you see the question. The question in verse 29. You see Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to them, oh, okay, you want to know that question? I'll ask you one question. Then answer me. Um, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Seems kind of obscure. and Maybe it seemed obscure to them. I, I don't know. I don't think it did because I think they understood the implications of what was happening. Um, he says, was it from heaven or was it from men? And then this just stern command, answer me. Answer me. What is Jesus doing here? I think this is what Jesus is doing. Proverbs 26 and verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Seems kind of like a contradiction there, but I think what is happening is, is that um, Proverbs teaches you don't answer a fool in the arena of his own foolishness. Because then you become a fool like him. Rather, you answer a fool according to his foolishness. In order, in order to show him how foolish he is. Um, so that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to provoke them with a question, which was often rabbinical tradition and, and just a regular practice. And he's going to show them the foolishness of what they just said. Um, how? By making them think through the process of particularly here, John's baptism. He doesn't play their little game and try to win the battle, the argument, and show that he's greater, of a greater wit. Uh, no intellectual games here. Um, he answers them in a way to show them their own foolishness. And when you get to 33, you find out it was pretty effective because here's their answer. We don't know, you know. Um, and I'll get to that, but that was just a lie. They didn't know. Um, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, they just veiled it um, so that they could live to fight another day. Tell me about John's baptism, he says. Or in other words, tell me about John's ministry. Did it come from heaven or did it come from men? Um, and what does Jesus' authority have to do with John's baptism at all? Well, um, it was at the baptism by John that the heavens were parted and the Spirit um, in power descended upon Christ. John was a forerunner. They knew that. You go over to um, uh, the other Gospels and what you find out, and even in this one, um, in verse number 32, they, they counted John to have been a prophet indeed. Uh, so, so they're in a quandary here. If they answer one way, they know something is going to happen. Um, and they have to submit to Christ as King if the reality is, is that, that John's baptism um, was legitimate and John's ministry was legitimate. And, and, and as he said, that I, you know, I, I decrease and he increases, right? That, that was his prayer. That was the goal. That, that, that he was there, not, not, not even worthy to unlatch his shoes, uh, let alone baptize him. That, that everything that John had done, the, you know, the, 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 in some sense, the preaching of, of repentance was, was somewhat secondary to what he, uh, his primary task was to do. That was to lay out the red carpet for the Son of God, the Creator of heaven and 
and earth the salvation. This is, he says, the Lamb of God who come to take away the sins of the, of the world. Um, the, the, this man who came, um, the, the, the world understood, the, the nation of Israel recognized that this man was not just a good preacher, this man was a prophet and the greatest of. And that to accept John's baptism, to accept John's preaching, to accept John as a prophet must mean that you have to accept that Jesus Christ is who John said that he was. So they couldn't do that because if they did, then they would have to submit. They would have to relinquish their authority and submit to his authority. Uh, But maybe even more than that, you know, he's exposing their own hypocrisy and foolishness. Jesus isn't, you know, I don't think Jesus really here is trying to help them come to the right conclusion. They know it in their heart. He's just showing them their own foolishness. That it was John's Baptist, John the Baptist, they, they hated John the Baptist as well. They didn't like it. The scripture is clear on that. That, that. that it was John the Baptist's ministry that authenticated Christ. You know, to authenticate John would be to authenticate Christ. To decide that John was a prophet would decide that Jesus, at the very least, um, was a prophet. Um, but even more than that, they hated John's message, which was a baptism or which is a message of repentance and a message of faith in which he stood before the Pharisees at times uh, refusing to baptize them because they did not have fruit that was meet with or right with repentance. Um, so no wonder they hated John because John preached against them just like Christ is standing and opposing them here now. But at the same time, they recognized that the nation is on par. They believe that John is a prophet, so we can't say um, that John's not a prophet because if we do, the people will lose it and we'll lose all respect with them and we'll lose our authority. Either way, they're losing authority. We lose authority with the people um, by proclaiming something that's clearly not. We lose authority with the people by proclaiming something that clearly is. See, that's the thing. They had a certain amount of authority, a certain amount of power, a certain amount of prestige. They had a certain amount of of, of power within the the temple and within the nation and over the people. And for for their life, they weren't willing to give it up, even with clear evidence right in front of them. You know, it's all there. It's all there. And they said, we do not know. (laughs) You know, we don't know. That's what you see in verse number 31. That they begin to reason among themselves. Um, literally, it could be translated in other places, dispute. They begin disputing among themselves. Jesus, with the skill of a surgeon, does what He did to the rich young ruler. And that's pinpoint the sin of their heart, which is hypocrisy and a love for authority um, that is ungodly and their lack of repentance. With bringing before them John and his message and John and his authentication of Christ, it brings before them the reality of their own hearts. And, um, and in their foolishness, they just dispute about it when they should have responded in humility. When the question is asked about John the Baptist, they knew the answer and they should have concluded, yes, you're right, and bow the knee, but they refused to believe and they said, I, I don't know. The rejection of John um, wasn't based on scriptural grounds. Isn't that interesting? These men who are upholding the law, these men who are living out the scriptures in the temple, these men who are to be um, um, the, the, the voice piece, the, the, the mouthpiece of God, um, these men who say that scripture is everything and we're here to guard it, and we're here to live it out, have no scriptural grounds. 
<laughs> to reject what Jesus asked them or what John said. They don't have a chapter and they don't have a verse. They didn't come back with Old Testament support. Neither was it on intellectual grounds. I'm convinced that they rejected John's ministry on moral ground. That is, they refused to repent. And that's true of us most of the time, isn't it? That's true of most people. You ever talk to an atheist? I used to love watching debates of atheists and Christians and just the way that it went. Even more so, it was very interesting to see an atheist who was at one time a pastor. Now, it's very intriguing. Um, and they get in the debate and they argue intellectually, they argue scripturally, um, or at least they attempt to. But if you listen to them long enough, it always comes back to some moral ground. It always comes back to some misunderstanding of, of, of evil, some misunderstanding of suffering, or some understanding of suffering, um, or, or this or that. Um, because in, at the end of the day, they have to say that they don't know. Um, and that's the reality. We don't know. Um, but oftentimes within encounters that I've been engaged in, um, especially within the context of the church, what ends up happening whenever people begin to defect from the faith, most of the time it's not on scriptural ground, it's not on intellectual ground, it's generally on moral ground. You know, having great questions and things like that most of the time. Um, there's a life that they want to lead, there's a girl that they want to date, there's somebody that they want to move in with, or something that they want to do. Um, that upholding the scriptures they can't do, they refuse to repent. And again, I'm not saying that that's exclusive. I'm not saying that that's universal across the board. I'm just telling you that that's my experience. And that was my experience as a young man, you know? Just the refusal to believe was often based not upon scriptural ground. There was no sufficient scriptural argument. There was no intellectual argument because at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, whenever you gather all that data up, all you, become, all you come up with is a probability, not a certainty. Um, but the, the certainty often rests in our um, will and our desires and what we desire to do. Therefore, we cast off um, restraints so that we can... Um, so that we can pursue the life that we desire um, to live. And, and that's exactly what you see in this passage of Scripture. That's what you see all over the world. You know? Again, I'm not saying that it's exclusive, and I'm not saying that it's universal, but I'm saying it's overwhelmingly um, experience. And that's what you see that the Scripture teaches. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18 said that, that the wrath of God um, is revealed to all men. Then he goes on to say, let me pull it up because I didn't write the entire quote and I don't want to uh, misquote it. But it's a very um, familiar passage of Scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Because what may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God, the incorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man. And, and, and therefore God also gave them up to the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their body among themselves. You know, there's a myth within the church and there's a myth within the world that, uh, that, that, of neutrality. You know? 
that the man says that he can come to the truth objectively, wanting to learn, that he comes as a blank slate, unbiased, desiring to understand what is true and what is false. And it's a myth. The Scriptures are clear. There is not an inquirer or a seeker of truth that comes objectively neutral. Romans 1 says, um, and Romans 2 and Romans 3 says that we are born with a corrupt nature and our goal in suppressing the truth that is overly evident to our lives is so that we can uh, bring down and, 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 and remove God uh, on His throne as King and authority over our lives so that we can erect whatever God that we desire and worship the creature more than the creation or the, cre- the, the Creator. Um, that we have one desire to, 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 in, in our original nature to distort the truth, to suppress the truth. Um, to, why? So that we can gain and take the advantage of it. And if it becomes threatening to us and we see uh, simply dismiss it as folly or misunderstanding or intellectual or possibly argue uh, scriptural. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's as far as I'm concerned, in my own experience, in my own life and in talking to others, it's always moral. It's always I don't understand this character of God or this thing that He does or, or this thing or, and I really want to pursue this other thing and I want to fulfill the desires of my own heart. And we stand even as, as Pharisees and as, as scribes and as priests and as religious people abandoning God's Word so that we can, or, or manipulating God's Word so that we can pursue um, whatever it is that we think um, honors God the most or honors us. There's another myth of autonomy. Man thinks that when he comes to the truth with an intellectual and moral autonomy by which he'll determine what is true and what is false. That man is the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. And the first myth is a myth of neutrality saying that we can come without any bias. And the second myth is a myth of autonomy where we can actually we say that we, can, uh, we have the authority and the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. And there is no such thing as intellectual autonomy. The Proverbs tell us that the the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Is it not true that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in whom? Jesus Christ. And here the religious leaders come to Jesus. And they're going to put Him on trial. You know? And they're going to show this facade of neutrality by asking questions as if they really truly want to know And listening to them that day, maybe the people believe that. But God tells us what was in their hearts. And it was a desire to overthrow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords so that they could could embrace and pursue um, their own kingdom and build it the way that they wanted to. They want to carry on in the temple. They love their religion. They love their sacrifices. They love it all. Um, But at the same time, they come to Jesus Christ with this sense of intellectual autonomy and spiritual autonomy saying that we have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. Um, Even apart from the Scriptures. Natural man thinks that he has enough moral autonomy to judge God. I don't need God um, to tell me what's morally right and morally wrong. Yes, you do. You know? So I don't need a Bible to tell me what's right and what's wrong. You, You may not need that. That's because the law of God is written upon your heart, friends. You know, that's because as the people of God born into the image of God, I hear it all the time. I hear atheists. I hear other people say it a hundred times. We don't need a book to tell us what's right and wrong. We know. You know why you know? Because God made you that way to know. So that you would be without excuse. So that you would pursue Him. So that you would honor Him. So that you would bow the knee to Him. So that you would submit ultimate authority to Him. That's why you know. 
Because the law of God is written upon your heart. It's written upon my heart. And that's why we enter into this world um, knowing that we are right or knowing that we are wrong, even apart from the Scriptures. The Scriptures um, are that, is that special revelation that adds color and direction and clarity and power. It contains the Gospel by which now we can be saved. And it, and it completes, to some, in some sense, a moral law as it lays even before us Christ in all of His glory and His utter perfection and His attributes and His affections and His love and His grace and His compassion and His righteousness and His holiness and a hundred, a million other things that we'll never be able to plumb the depths of that Christ has laid out before us to show us ourselves. And that's exactly what happened here. Christ is there before them. Not only in this instance, but in a thousand other instances not contained within the Scriptures showing them the Word of God, but also showing Him His example and displaying the love of God. And they won't have it. And they'll make it sound intellectual. If they have an argument against God. Like we don't have enough evidence. You ever heard that? God's clear. There's more than enough that you and I are without excuse. That what you see in nature and what you see in the mirror and what you see in space and what you see in your little one and what you see in the trees and what you see in the sea and what you see in the mountains and what you see um, all throughout the world is more than enough um, evidence to show that there's a God. That the, that, that, that the problem and the issue with us and the problem and the issue with um, the Pharisees is not that we need more data. It is that we are already rejecting the data that we have. And that we need to submit to Jesus Christ as King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we do that by repentance and faith, um, He gives us a new heart, overwhelms us with the Spirit of God, writes upon us a new law in which now we can finally and fully live out the life that we were created to live. You say, but what about this? What about it? What about it? What about it? What about that? So you see the quarrel, you see the question, and then you see the quiet. Verse 33, they said, we don't know. Jesus answered and said to them, then I won't tell you either. Isn't that one of the saddest verses in all the Bible? I'm done. Isaiah chapter 5. He says, you judge. What more could I have done among you than I've not already done? What more could I have done than I've not already done? Look at the vineyard. Look at the world. You know? Look at your family. Look at your life. Look at the blessings. Look at the, the power. Look at the prestige. Look at, look at the glories of the world. You know? Look at Christ and all of His glory. Like, what can I do? What more can I do than I've not already done? And here we are, worms, asking for more. God, show me. Prove to me that there's a creation of the world. Now give me some historical account. Give me some, something that I can know that the resurrection was true. Give me this. Give me that. Um, give me, give me what more. What more? And there's a point in which Jesus says, I'm done. Like, why didn't He preach the Gospel to them? You know? You ever think about that? Like, why? Why isn't it it's a good time? It seems like you're standing in the midst of of a religious cult, and and it seems like a good time to just 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 to preach the gospel and to run through all the issues and and to go through the debates and things like that. And he says, if you won't be honest with yourself, then I can't help you. 
That's where it's at. It's not because they didn't know and it's not because He didn't love them. It's because they refused to believe the truth. They loved the authority of their own lives. They loved themselves more than they loved God. And at some point, God hands Romans chapter 1, hands us over to a reprobate mind and gives us over to ourselves. The curtain falls here. You know? They reject the light and eventually it goes out. Um, today is the day of salvation. You know, believe when the light is there. My spirit, and he says in Genesis chapter 6, will not always strive with man. He says to them uh, at some point, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, yet you would not. Or how often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks, yet, yet you would not. You know, Hosea tells us Ephraim, he's joined to idols, leave him alone. That God is patient and that God is long-suffering, but at the same time, God does have His limits. And there is a point in which He says, I'm not answering you according to your foolishness. Because you don't need more data. You need to humble your heart. Repent. Believe the Gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And then you'll be saved. You know? What do we learn from this? People don't need more data. And that's not to say that we shouldn't study about creation and we shouldn't study about this and that. And I love it. <laughs> I think it's probably more edifying for the believer than it is convincing for the unbeliever. Um, that, that, that what it does is it just provokes and, 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 and builds up our faith. That we become more convinced that God is who that He says He is and that we just follow Him um, by more. But in evangelism, people don't need more data. People need the Gospel. People need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is that they don't have enough. It's not that they don't have enough information. The problem is that they reject the information that they already have. The problem is not that they aren't convinced that he's the king of the universe. The problem is is that the king is very clear and they won't submit to him. Thus, they suppress and sear their conscience such that they remove him from the very consciousness, and that's why they become atheists. Not because they're born that way, but because they make themselves that way. But here's the danger as we talk about atheists. These men aren't atheists. The danger is to have on priestly garments and submit and refuse to submit to the king, isn't it? That's the great tragedy. As John Bunyan said, Pilgrim's Progress, then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. People hate authority. People hate it by nature. America is a perfect example. We're seeing the manifestation of an anti-authoritarian society in which now we're codifying the individual as the ultimate authority. You know, we could spend days and weeks on that, could we? Months, years on the philosophies of the age. Maybe we need to, right? The underlying philosophy of the day that gives ultimate credence to human autonomy and self-creation. You know? And now we have people choosing things concerning their lives that just go against the grain of everything that we know. But you know what's more dangerous than that? Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's this. Us dressed all in our priestly garments with some... Some visage of religiousness. 
Let me ask it like this. What's more dangerous? A latent form of slow-growing cancer that you can't really notice until it's too late? Or a faster-growing, fully developed cancer? You know? Both are going to kill you. But I'd almost say the former is worse. Working in hospice, I've seen people with slow-growing cancer and how it eats them alive until it totally consumes them and they stand before God. All the while, you're hoping that the Lord will take them earlier. At least in the faster-growing, it's quick. But at the end of the day, they both go. At the end of the day, we can harp on atheists all day long and, and say, hey man, you go get them. But the vast majority of our Christ teaching was not to them, it was to us. It was to us. right? One writer says that the religious man says, I cannot. But the truth of his heart is, is that he will not. The ruin of thousands is simply this, that they deal dishonestly with their own souls. They refuse to be honest with themselves. They allege pretended difficulties at the cause of their not serving Christ. While in all the reality, John 3.19, they simply love darkness rather than light and have no honest desire to change. And you know what most of them will do? If the Gospel doesn't take effect in their hearts and lives, they will do as these men did. And that's crucify the Christ in their own lives so that they can live as they desire. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so... It's like this all over. Done. But I ask myself that often too. Fully secure in Christ. Many days in my unbelief. Why don't I serve him? What more could he do? There's an utter necessity for the gospel in this. Amen. Amen. I don't want to be downward and discouraging and a hundred other things, you know. I'm that kind of guy. I need a pastor, an elder to come alongside me to balance me out. You know, uh, pray for that. I know I preach these kind of messages often. I won't apologize for that. It's just, just who I am. But don't forget the gospel. <laughs> We're all like that. I was like that as a 15-year-old boy, just as moral as can be, thinking I could earn something with God and the gospel came forward. Don't get so discouraged in a message like this that you think, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus has been reserving and preserving and saving the nations for 2,000 years, and don't you think for one moment he's going to stop today because of a few religious elite. <laughs> You know, it's in their murder of him and in the martyr of men and the martyr of men like Christ um, that it becomes all the more even evident. You say, what more could he do? Show us that. 
Give us some men that are devoted. Give us some men that are changed. Give us some men that have heart. Give us some men that will raise their families. Give us some men that will stand in the public arena and in, their, in, 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 in their workplaces and in their homes and all throughout the world and preach this gospel. Because if it wasn't for Him, like you would be that too. Like you would be there. And I would be there. Thus, let us take it into the highways and into the hedges and compel them to come in and show them not only by our, our, our doctrine, but by our life, who He is and what He has came to accomplish for all this world. And I trust uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that if that was happening in this church, if that was happening in my life, Christ would receive the reward of His suffering. That King Sport, that uh, Bristol and that Johnson City um, would be at least more filled with Christianity today than what it is. I'm not arguing for ultimate reform, but I do believe um, that, that when the gospel goes forth, Christ um, accomplishes what He desires with it, and that is primarily the salvation of um, His people. Thus, let us take it. Let us take it. This is for why He died. You know? This is for why He died. And He deserves His. So let us give it to Him. And if that's you today, I'd... We're about to take the Lord's table. I love the Lord's table. It's got the gospel all over it. And if that's you today, and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've got on your religious garb, and you've just been living for Him, or living for yourself, for the facade, and it looks like you're living for Him, but really you've been living for yourself. I beg you today on behalf of Christ to repent and to believe the gospel. And the gospel is, is that he died to save sinners by which I am chief, by, of which I am chief. And that if you'll come to him by faith and repentance, I'm in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and then you can have full security that you are a child of the Most High God and have eternal life. This is eternal life that you may know him, that uh, God the Father, by his eternal wrath, poured out the judgment that we deserve on his only son just two days after this why so that the world would come to christ and all the nations he would receive and today he desires to receive you so come come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest let's pray father we praise you and thank you just for the privilege it is to preach your word god i love you i love you so much. But at the same time, I know that it'll never be enough. And that's why your son came to love us in you, to make these impossible things possible. So, Father, we praise you for that. God, we come to a text like this, and I know a hundred men would have preached it differently, but I didn't. And this is what you gave me. And oh, how I see myself in it. Father, you are a good king. Your authority is just immeasurable in what you're able and capable to do in this world. It goes beyond me in some sense, but at the same time, I, I'm just saying it from this side, not the other. Father, you couldn't have done more. What grace you've extended to us in Christ. And for that, you are worthy to be praised. Father, you have all power in heaven and on earth. Like, who, where else would we go? 
Like who else should we go to? What other leader is greater? What other person is more powerful? Who is more skillful and more intellectual than you? Uh, who is more faithful? And a thousand times we resound, no one. No one. So, Father, remind us of that. Remind us of just the gospel day in and day out and what all of that means, Lord. Just remind us of just our utter need of You. God, but in these solemn times, help us not to stay there. Help us to look to Christ to repent and to see the glories of Him and His kingdom and all that He's accomplished on our behalf, Father. I pray that the Spirit would just comfort our souls, Father, in the midst of times like these and just encourage us to persevere. Lord, because on many days, as the song says, Lord, I would wander. But You are faithful. God, we need You to make sense of things like this because they don't always make sense. And I just pray that You'd help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with You, Father, um, at the immeasurable um, reality of who You are and what You desire of us. God, help us not to, at the end of the day, say, we don't know. Help us to, not to be lukewarm, but hot or cold. Um, to make the decision. To move forward or totally reject it. But help us not to lie in, in um, questions, Father, and false security. But help us to know who we are, where we're going, and what we're doing in this world, Lord. Help us not to hide behind religious guard, but show us ourselves. And help us to use that religious guard as a means to promote your Son, to exalt the Christ, and to reach the nations for the glory of God. Because your Son has all authority in heaven and on earth. And where to go ye therefore. Lord, and if you're able to do what you've done in, in this place, the world's a field ready and ripe to be harvested. So let us go. God, let us go. In Jesus' name, amen.